If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> if you have your app, just swipe up, right? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ died for sins for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to him. There's good news and bad news about this text. The bad news is that this paragraph is widely considered the most problematic in the entire New Testament. Textual experts are not sure what word Peter used in a couple of places. Translators are unsure how to render some of Peter's vocabulary. Grammarians are unsure how to best string these words together. Theologians are unsure about what Peter is claiming at a couple of points in this paragraph. Martin Luther, who was not usually shy about saying what the Bible means, wrote, this is a strange and obscure passage. I do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Now, most of 1 Peter is pretty straightforward. Peter's letter to resident aliens is easy to understand and very practical, but the end of chapter 3 puzzles us. One scholar figured that if you take all of the alternative interpretive possibilities and mix them in all of the possible combinations, there are 180 ways to interpret this paragraph. That's the bad news. Now for the good news. The main idea of the text is clear. Although the details may be fuzzy, the main thrust of this paragraph at the end of 1 Peter 3 is plain. So. Before we look at the details, let me give you what I think is the main idea, the big idea. I don't ordinarily like to do this because if the preacher tells you right up front what he's going to tell you, he gives you an excuse to tune out. <laughs> you know what he's going to say. But on this occasion, I think it might be helpful to get the big picture before the details so that you don't spend the first 55 minutes of the sermon wondering what on earth Peter is getting at. Some of you saw what I did there. First 25 minutes of the sermon, wondering what on earth Peter is getting at. Here's the big idea. 
Christ is vindicated after unjust suffering. And we, his baptized people, who may share in that suffering, share in that vindication. The righteous, innocent Son of God suffered on behalf of the unrighteous. And then in the resurrection and ascension, he was vindicated by God. And if we are faithful in suffering in allegiance to him, following in his footsteps, as Peter tells us to do in this epistle, God will vindicate us as well. So, once again, Christ is vindicated after unjust suffering, and we, his baptized people, who may share in that suffering, will share in that vindication. Now let's look at the details. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. John Muir, the conservationist, writes in one of his memoirs, uh, Travels in Alaska, the story of two Indian tribes that were very receptive to missionaries coming to preach the gospel in the late 1800s. He writes that these tribes gave a hearty welcome to the missionaries and, and their message, even the message of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on Calvary, which is an offense to many uh, Europeans and people of European descent. They told the missionaries that 20 or 30 years earlier there had been a long ongoing war between these two tribes. They were pretty evenly matched. And after fighting all summer in a desultory fashion, sometimes fighting undercover, looking for an opportunity to ambush somebody, sometimes out in the open, uh, the women of this one village did not dare to go down into the berry fields to procure their winter stock. They didn't dare go down to the stream to harvest salmon. And people started to go hungry. So the chief of this village, we'll call it Village A because the names are almost unpronounceable, the chief of village A went out into an open space and called for the chief of the other village to come for a conference. And he said, look, our people are starving. Our women are afraid that they'll get ambushed if they go down to the stream or out into the berry fields. My guess is that your people must also be hungry. Let's make peace. Let's call for a truce. You and your brave warriors go back to your village my brave warriors will go back to their village and, and will we'll not fight anymore. And the chief of village B said, well, it's easy for you to call for peace because you've had the best of it. You've killed ten more of my warriors than we have of yours. So, no, we're not going to make peace unless you turn over us, to us ten of your warriors. We'll kill them. And then we'll be even. And then we'll have peace, but not before. 
Very well, said the chief of village A. You know my worth. You know that I am worth at least ten of my men. Take me instead. And they agreed. And he was cut down with witnesses from both sides as a substitute for the ten deaths demanded by village B. And they had peace. So John Muir writes, when missionaries came with the Christian gospel, this is what the members of these two villages said. The missionaries explained that God's laws had been broken, making us aliens, enemies of God, and that God's Son stepped forward and, like their chief 20 or 30 years earlier, offered himself as a sacrifice. Your words are good, they said. The Son of God, the chief of chiefs, the maker of all the world, must be worth more than all mankind put together. So when his blood was shed, the salvation of the world was made sure. Now, it's not a perfect analogy. There is no perfect analogy for the atonement, but it does help us make the point. Jesus didn't have to die, but he did, so that others, you and I, might live forever in fellowship with God. I wonder if you noticed that little word at the beginning of verse 18, the word for. Peter links Jesus' sacrificial death with what precedes in verse 17. And we will get to this. I know I'm not preaching all of 1 Peter in order for reasons. But verse 17 says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Resident aliens may well suffer in a culture that is hostile to Christ, the Son of God, and suffer not in spite of doing good, but suffer for doing good. Which is how and why Jesus suffered. He never did anything wrong. He never sinned. He never caved into temptation. He was always right, and all of his suffering was undeserved. But that doesn't mean that it was a senseless, dead-end tragedy. His suffering was vindicated. It accomplished what he intended to bring people to God. He was, we read in the middle of verse 18, put to death in the body. He died a literal physical, excruciating death. And when we come to the Lord's table, we should not let the familiarity of the communion observance obscure that fact. Jesus was butchered for us. He was, Peter continues, made alive by the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul, too, in Romans 1 and chapter 8, links the resurrection with the mighty third person of the Trinity. And through the Spirit, Peter continues, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison 
And here we come to one of the tough, disputed points of the paragraph. Who are these spirits in prison? And where are they? Where's this prison? What did Jesus say to them? To what end? And when did this preaching take place? Well, I don't think you want to hear 180 interpretations. So let me tell you what I think Peter is getting at. Keep your finger in chapter 3 and look back at chapter 1 and verse 10. Verse Peter 1, 10. Concerning this salvation that Peter's been talking about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. When in times past the prophets spoke to their own generation, it was the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in them who was speaking. And Peter says the same thing in his second letter. Holy men of God did not speak on their own, but spoke as they were born along, moved along by the Holy Spirit. So when Noah preached to his generation, Christ was preaching through him. He warned people to repent. They did not, and so they perished and were imprisoned in hell. And the preaching that Peter talks about was long ago on earth before their imprisonment. Now, why, of all the Old Testament stories that Peter knew, did he Focus on the Noah story. Find the Noah story suitable for this epistle. Well, he's not here for us to interview, but perhaps it was because the Noah story, like the Jesus story, is a story of salvation in the midst of destruction. Or perhaps it's because Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by unbelieving pagans, and Peter's first readers were a minority surrounded by unbelieving pagans. Maybe it was because Noah was a righteous man in the midst of an unbelieving generation and Peter's readers were urged to be righteous in the middle of an unbelieving generation. Maybe it was because Noah witnessed to those around him by believing God and building the ark and Peter elsewhere in texts that we have not yet come to urges his readers to bear witness to the gospel. Maybe it was because at the time of Noah, God waited patiently for repentance before he brought judgment, and so it is in the case of Peter's readers. Maybe it was because Noah was finally saved with only a few other people, eight in all, verse 20 says. So Peter encourages his readers that although just a few of them, perhaps, they too will certainly finally be saved because Christ has triumphed. Christ has been vindicated. Christ is on the throne. And in his time, he will bring all things into submission. And finally, maybe Peter chooses the Noah story because Noah's flood reminded him of baptism. Verse 21. This water, the water that drowned the world, 
symbolizes baptism. The flood of judgment in Noah's day foreshadowed the billows of judgment that Jesus endured. And when we go under the water of baptism, we picture, we reenact the death and burial of Christ. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons that we practice baptism by immersion here. A sprinkling or pouring of water would be sufficient if the only thing that baptism needed to represent was cleansing of some kind. But in fact, the New Testament teaches us that baptism is a mini-drama, one of two gospel ordinances, the other being communion, a mini-drama in which the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is pictured, and the death, burial, and resurrection of the believer is pictured. So that when we go under the water, it's as if we're saying that the old sin-loving self is dead and buried, and what comes up is a new person oriented toward following the Lord Jesus and honoring his Father. And for that kind of a ceremony, you need to go under. Which has been a challenge for some parts of the world and even in our own country in certain times. A few years ago, there was a severe drought in the southern part of the United States and somebody wrote this. It's so dry in West Texas that the Baptists are starting to baptize by sprinkling. The Methodists are using wet wipes. The Presbyterians are giving out rain checks and the Catholics are praying for the wine to turn back into water. Now that's dry. Listen again to verse 21. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. What? Baptism saves? What happened to salvation by grace through faith? Well, Peter is quick to clarify that it is the reality baptism embodies that saves us. He qualifies his statement, baptism saves you, by going on to say, not the washing of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers all in submission to him. The efficacy of baptism is not in the water itself or in the rite, but in the reality that it, that it points to and our appropriation of that reality by faith. Baptism is the outward expression, and I don't say only the outward expression or merely the outward expression because the New Testament does not minimize baptism that way. It is the God-ordained, God-commanded, non-negotiable, mandatory, outward expression of saving faith. Not the washing of dirt from the body. Researchers at the University of Toronto published a study back in 2006 that suggests people experience a powerful urge to wash themselves when suffering from a guilty conscience. The researchers called this the Macbeth effect, referring to Shakespeare's play where 
Lady Macbeth cries out, out, damned spot, while trying to scrub away bloodstains that exist only in her mind. Well, in order to study this effect, the researchers asked volunteers to think about an immoral act they had committed in the past, maybe betraying a friend or shoplifting or so on. And then, without explaining the purpose of the research, the, the volunteers were, were offered the opportunity to wash their hands. And as a result of the study, those who had retraced their sins jumped at the offer at twice the rate of the control group to wash themselves. <laughs> if only it were that easy. Just wash yourself after you've sinned. No, baptism is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. I signify by my baptism that just as surely as Christ was dead and buried, the old sin-loving Ken Langley is dead and buried, and just as surely as Christ was raised, I'm raised to a new way of living, a new life with a pardoned conscience that seeks to please God. It's a true story from years ago about a machinist with the Ford Motor Company in Detroit who over the years had pilfered numerous tools and supplies from his employer. He maybe didn't really intend to steal them, but he took them home anyway. And then he was converted and was baptized. And the day after his baptism, took all of this stuff back to the plant and explained to his foreman what he had done and hoped that he'd be forgiven. Well, the foreman was so impressed by this uh, extraordinary experience that he actually cabled Mr. Ford, who was in Europe at the time, explaining the whole situation. And Ford cabled back and said, damn up the Detroit River and baptize the whole city. May we hope that every Christian would take his or her baptism so seriously? Baptism saves you, Peter says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from the resurrection, there is no victory over Jesus' undeserved suffering. Apart from Easter, Good Friday is a dead end. And our Lord died unvindicated. But up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. The empty tomb demonstrates that Jesus is who he said he was, that his suffering did what he said it would do, brought you and me to God. Easter showed that Good Friday was not a senseless tragedy, but that God can and does bring great good out of suffering. The greatest good possible out of the greatest crime ever committed. And I wonder if you're, if you're beginning to see how all these details, Noah, the flood, baptism, fit together to make this claim. Christ is vindicated, and we, his baptized people, who may share in his unjust suffering, share in his vindication. 
paragraph ends with Peter saying that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Where have we heard that word submission before in 1 Peter? Citizens submit to the government. Servants submit to employers. Wives submit to husbands. Why? Why? To what end? Is this just good, prudent counsel for living in a hostile world? Just kind of keep your head low and go along and say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am? No, no, no. In God's politics, the way up is down. Humiliation before glory. Submission before exaltation. Through undeserved suffering, willingly born, God works good for his son, for his people, for the world. So Christian citizen, are you disheartened by a government that seems increasingly hostile toward Christianity? Tough to submit. Hey, Peter says, keep your chin up. Remember that Easter song that I quoted a moment ago. Here's a different line from it. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Christian employee, is it tough to submit to an unfair boss who gets his digs in about your Christian commitment? Hang in there. Trust and obey Jesus, the boss of all bosses, who's in heaven with angels and principalities and powers submitting to him. Christian wife, Christian husband, is it tough to live the life of a disciple? If you're in a mixed marriage, your spouse is not a believer, it's tough. Take heart. God sees, God knows, he won't let your suffering go to waste. Christ is vindicated after unjust suffering. And we, his baptized people, who may share in that suffering, share in that vindication. There's an old story. I've told it before, but it bears repeating here. A story about how the news about the Battle of Waterloo reached the people of England. Wellington's victory over Napoleon was first taken across the English Channel by ship, and then from the southern coast, the news was relayed by a series of signal flags to London. And when the report was received at London, the signal flags on the top of Winchester Cathedral started to spell out the news. Wellington defeated, but then an old-fashioned London fog rolled in and obscured the rest of the message. And based on that incomplete information, the citizens of London thought that Wellington was defeated, that Napoleon had won a crushing defeat for their country and for all of Europe, and gloom filled the nation as the bad news quickly spread. But then when the the fog cleared. The rest of the message was signaled from the cathedral. Wellington defeated the enemy. 
Joy replaced the gloom. There was dancing in the streets. Undeserved suffering can cloud your thinking like a fog. It really can. Just don't think clearly. Peter, in this difficult paragraph, shines light on our situation through the fog. Christ is vindicated. We as baptized people who may share in his undeserved suffering share in that vindication. Well, let's pray together. What wonderful good news, Father. Thank you for including this in your word. Thank you that despite the difficulties of the text, this much has been clear and help us not only to see it and understand it, but to embrace it and live in the light of this good news. Help us to do what a familiar hymn urges us to do, to rejoice in glorious hope, because our Lord the Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. And let all his people say, Amen.